0: This is the MDT Podcast.
1: A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT.
2: The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge, to help you look after
3: older people.
1: And welcome to this week's episode of the MDT. My name is Ian Wilkinson and I'm a consultant geriatrician down in Surrey.
2: And I'm Joe Preston and I'm a geriatrician in London. So in this episode we're going to talk a bit about behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia and how they might present. So these can sometimes be called um, behaviours that challenge in dementia and we're going to talk a bit about how to recognise those and what might be the root cause of them to help you identify them. What we're not going to talk about is the, necessarily the management of that, uh, we're going to do that in another episode. And with us in the studio this evening, we have two psychiatrists.
0: So hi, I'm Vicky Osman hicks I'm a consultant in older persons mental health in an acute hospital, in liaison in
3: Southampton General Hospital. Hi, I'm Kate Bailey and I'm an SD5 in old age and general adult psychiatry and I'm currently working in a liaison job in Homerton Hospital.
1: We're going to hear much more from both of those people mm. very shortly. But first of all, Joe, social media this week, what have you got? What have you seen? What do you want to tell everyone about?
2: So one of the things I thought was quite interesting to share is the Parkinson's calculator, um, which we discussed in the MDT Club discussion after the Parkinson's episode, but Mm. has been retweeted a few times. I think it's really useful because it's something that people struggle with quite a lot. It's literally parkinsonscalculator.com. You can have a look and it helps you to dose translate when people are missing doses.
1: Yeah, it's really good. There's quite a bit of discrepancy between the various different calculators as to how much of One type of dopamine preparation converts to another, but I think that's pretty good. That one, and is I think is that the one that comes from the Geriatric Society special interest group? I think it might be. Okay, my Mm -hmm. thing is a tweet from well, actually, I went on a bit of a journey on on my train (laughs) up here. Yeah, so this is a tweet from David Gerlink, who's at David Gerlink on Twitter. That's J double U, as in two U's, difficult. Uh, R-L-I-N-K. Mm-hmm. and he's a hospitalist in the States and he had a quote from one of his residents said saying I'm not sure what's going on with this one I assume meaning a patient and um, David's comment underneath that was never underestimate the value of communicating diagnostic uncertainty so I sort of thought that was a bit interesting and then I followed the, the stream of conversation under it which led me to a journal article in the BMC Family Practice Journal from July this year entitled Managing Diagnostic Uncertainty in Primary Care. And it was a systematic critical review. And what they found I thought was quite interesting. They reviewed about 10 studies, so quite small, um, and they found that there was little empirical evidence on how uncertainty is managed in primary care. They highlighted the fact that you can conceptualise diagnostic uncertainty into a number of different bits, which is what I really liked. So you can think about it in a cognitive way. you can think about it in an emotional way and you can think about ethical, all of which have elements of uncertainty within them. And the thought is that by thinking about the uncertainty that you have is does it lie within the cognitive and sort of knowledge domain? Is it an emotional uncertainty or is it an ethical uncertainty it can actually help you be aware of some of your own internal biases. And therefore help you make better decisions.
2: So that's really interesting. Mm. Cognition is kind of leads into what we're
1: it does funny talking
2: that. about today.
1: <laughs> so this week we're going to talk about some of the psychological and behavioural difficulties that you may come across in people living with a diagnosis of dementia. And hopefully we can get you to understand how dementia can lead to behaviours which may seem challenging or disturbing for the person you're looking after. Hmm.
2: And we want you to be able to know how to assess some behaviours that might seem challenging at first to try and identify a cause for them and to feel more confident in engaging with people who have a cognitive impairment in de-escalating those situations.
1: And how to engage families and carers in conversation about why these symptoms may be happening and some of the things that you can um, do with them to try and help resolve some of the symptoms
2: and really importantly to consider um, behaviors that may seem quite challenging as an unmet need rather than a challenge per se
1: yeah so we need to start with a definition yes I think we should start with the definition of dementia which mm. I'm sure we've done before in one of the other episodes but we go with the WHO definition Vicky
0: this isn't the one I usually use <laughs> okay so um dementia is a syndrome And it includes, it's an umbrella term for a number of different types of dementia. And I think that's one of the things that often confuses people. They say, oh no, but I've got Alzheimer's, not dementia. Or my husband's got Alzheimer's, not dementia. So Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia, but dementia is a syndrome. It affects both cognitive function, as in memory and thinking, but also non-cognitive function function which is what we're going to focus on today like behaviors and personality Um, and the who describes this um, in in a way of saying dementia is a syndrome usually of a chronic or progressive nature in which there is a deterioration in cognitive function.
1: I think it's important to think that consciousness is not normally affected in dementia which is helps us Mm. a little bit with patients that are delirious in that that can affect consciousness although consciousness can be affected in people with dementia with Lewy bodies Mm -hmm. on some occasions, particularly in the later stage.
0: And I think one of the important other things to mention is the time criteria. So to have a diagnosis of dementia, you've got to have the symptoms for at least six months. You've got to have at least two domains of cognitive dysfunction so that might be a problem with your short-term memory and a problem with disorientation and it's also got to affect function to a significant level and that's when it becomes a dementia um, and all other reversible causes have been ruled out so it's not that the person is unable to hear the questions and so doesn't score well on their memory test or can't see um, or is too medically unwell in the acute hospital to perform well on the cognitive test. I think that's really important Mm. to focus on what also isn't dementia. Yeah
1: Mm. we've got a bit more on that if you go back to series two episode four we did a whole episode on diagnosing dementia Mm -hmm. so head back to that uh, on the website and you can catch up and it might be useful if you've not listened to that episode to listen to that one before Mm. maybe some of the things we're going to talk about later on
2: and again next one of the things we're going to talk about is the different types of dementia um, that are common in this age group Um, but we do go through this in some more detail in the communicating and cognitive impairment episode in series one so we'll recap a little bit now So Alzheimer's, as you were saying, Vicky, is one of the the commonest types of dementia that we see, followed by vascular dementia. Other types include dementia in Lewy body and dementia in Parkinson's, uh, which typically have hallucinations quite early on compared with the other dementias. So with that you get quite early personality change and disinhibited behaviours. And increasingly we're seeing alcohol-related dementias as well in the SAGE group.
0: And there's also, importantly, there's the um, speech variant forms of frontotemporal Mm. dementia. So. Typically we see, um, we notice the behaviour variant um, frontotemporal dementias because of people acting in a way that people notice is different but also there's the semantic um, dementia and mm. other forms of speech variant mm. frontotemporal dementia.
1: They're often quite tricky to spot initially, aren't they? But yeah. with hindsight you sort of yes. uh, can unpick things and you're like, ah, penny drops and, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, yeah.
0: But generally, in people over the age of 65, um, which I'll say were called older adults, apologies for anyone that's 65 that's listening to this, (laughs) um, the common forms of dementia are Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, Lewy body and dementia in Parkinson's. Mm. But also alcohol-related dementias are on the increase and are more common in, um, in different areas depending on urbanicity
3: and drinking. I think we're also making a lot more diagnoses of mixed dementia as well, so Alzheimer's and vascular dementia together.
2: And so what we're going to concentrate on today is when that person who's living with dementia starts to experience different or exaggerated behaviours that wouldn't be usual for them and um, because that can have a significant impact not just on them but also on their family and their carers around them. So lots of these behaviours might be called behavioural symptoms of dementia but they're not technically symptoms of dementia itself but they're usually other Problems or symptoms that cannot be communicated because of the impact that dementia has had potentially on language or communication.
1: And up to 90% of people with dementia at some course in their illness can have one or more of these symptoms. And the commonest thing is?
3: The commonest thing would be described as agitation, and obviously that kind of encompasses quite a wide range of, of behaviour, I guess, from kind of being you know, mildly frustrated or kind of irritable um, to to things that are more kind of physical and and, um, perhaps even verbal aggression and Mm. that sort of thing.
1: And that can occur in up to three quarters of people at some point.
3: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Over the course of of people's, um, you know, life with dementia, they can certainly very commonly have some agitation at some point.
1: Mm. And what are some of the other things?
3: Some of the other things would be sort of what's described as wandering, which is a term I really don't like. Um,
1: but is how it's
3: described in the literature and I think often what is described as wandering can actually be quite purposeful or yeah. or make sense um, if if you're able to kind of get to know the person and understand where they might be going or where they're, they're trying to get to um, or perhaps they're just someone that really liked walking a lot in their life and it's just not the right time and place to be walking.
1: I worked with a, a fab specialist nurse for older people in a hospital when I was a registrar and she said that you know at some point in the future she's fairly certain she will come into hospital with a cognitive impairment and she said at that point I will be up and trying to walk around the wards of this hospital and she said and that's that's because I've been doing it for all these years you know and it is just completely natural for me to do it and um, if people try and sit me down and stop me doing it I'm going to get really frustrated because that's that's what I want to be doing you know.
3: Absolutely.
0: So it's really important that we, we work the environment of hospitals around our patients and yeah. try not to get patients to do what we ask of them, but actually yeah. to try and actually design an environment that enables them to, to walk, yeah. which often is not
3: encouraged yeah. as much as it should be. So I think we, we can see what we can't think of a better term for wandering, but up to 60% of people will will kind of wander or, or have that type of behaviour at some point in their illness. Um, and closely followed by depression, which is very common, kind of up to half people with dementia at some point in their illness will have um, depression, which can also, I suppose, be something that we see in the very early stages as a first manifestation of cognitive impairment, um, but can occur in the later stages as well. Um, Psychosis is also quite common, so when we're talking about that, we're we're talking about things like delusions um, or hallucinations, And some of the very common types of psychotic symptoms that people might have kind of make a lot of sense, actually, when you think about uh, having cognitive impairment. You know, it's very common to be thinking that people have maybe moved things or stolen things from you, Mm. which actually, when you think about it, if you can't remember where you've put something... You're going to kind of jump to conclusions, and and you may jump to the wrong conclusion. But you might kind of then accuse people that you live with, or or staff that are stealing things from you, and 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 so that can occur in about 30% of people um, at some at some point. And I guess it's really important to to know as well that although we're saying that this can occur at one point, it may not kind of last a very long time. It might be quite a transitory symptom that's self-limiting. But this is just to kind of show that at some point in in people's illness course, they will have these symptoms. That's then followed by screaming and calling out, which is in up to a quarter of people. And that's... Obviously, also quite a variable symptom. It could be people who are kind of not particularly mobile, who are kind of trying to get someone's attention. But sometimes it can also be really hard to get to the bottom of what people are needing. And mm. it is a very difficult symptom to treat, actually, even when you think you've kind of ruled out, you know, are they in pain? Are they, you know, are they thirsty? It can be quite, quite difficult to get to the bottom of it.
1: There was that study we've talked about before from Scandinavia, where by the simple addition of paracetamol mm. Mm. on a regular basis um patient's level of agitated and and sort of calling out behavior reduced yeah. implying mm. I and mean, oh, it's not non-causative it? but yeah but yeah. implying that, that there was an unmet need yeah. in terms of analgesic requirements and pain mm.
3: Absolutely, and I think the, the difficulties with kind of the communication problems that people with dementia might have is that they're not necessarily able to communicate that they're in pain. Um, mm. It might be sort of a, a vocalisation of some kind, mm. but if that's not kind of interpreted as pain, then they won't ever get the right kind of treatment for it.
0: But some people can get um, stuck on these kind of motor loops of calling mm. out, which generally don't respond to a lot of pharmacological intervention. Mm. Um, and it's really important that a person... Is treated as a, in a person-centred, individual way, um, and over the course of their illness or their stay in hospital, team members go to review to check that they whether they need anything, because it can be very difficult. We can miss a new symptom yeah. in in or a new problem in someone that constantly calls out, and the worry is that staff won't then notice the new problem. Yeah
1: or won't attend, yes. which then leads on to a cycle that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Yeah. Mm.
3: And I think as well, some of the ones that, that aren't actually mentioned here that have just sprung to mind uh, are things that are very, very common and kind of are what can be very difficult for people living with someone with dementia, um, but things like kind of apathy and disinterest, um, which is not necessarily depression, but can be very hard to kind of to to, to live with and to, to try and get you know, someone, the person that you love, excited about something that they maybe used to be excited about, um, or repetitive questioning can be something that I think you know, carers and, and people living with someone who has dementia can find very draining sometimes. But moving further down the list in terms of frequency, um, something that is sort of described as aggression can be in up to twenty percent of um, of cases, and I suppose again that's kind of variable in terms of whether it's physical or verbal aggression. And I guess it's also very difficult to know whether these statistics come from times when people are perhaps delirious as well. I know there's some headlines a while back about kind of you know people with dementia causing all of these assaults on NHS staff, but actually it's kind of probably someone who's got dementia and someone's trying to get a drip into them. Um, who, and actually the person with dementia is terrified and, and has delirium and that's why they're aggressive, not because they're fundamentally aggressive necessarily. And that's that's really
0: important. When people hand over or, or are discussing a patient, it's really important to say, "What do you mean by aggression?" Because aggression can mean different things to different people. So it might be verbal aggression, or it might be being disinhibited, or using um, more coarse language, or it might be physically striking the phlebotomist on taking bloods or it might be actually unprovoked aggression and each one needs to be managed in a slightly different way Mm. in terms of a kind of the environment and the approach and so it's really important to to find out what type what do you mean by aggression Mm. really
2: If you want to read about that in a little bit more depth, there's going to be a link in the show notes to um, the paper that was in Frontiers in Neurology in 2012. Um, So as we've just started to talk about, really, um, one of the really difficult things can be if you're in an acute medical unit or an assessment setting, um, is working out uh, what the difference, whether this is a delirium or whether this is um, some behavioural or psychological symptoms in dementia. Um, So we're going to talk through that a little bit more now and we're going to use a case study provided by Vicky um, to walk, walk through this and that's kind of how we're going to structure the rest of the episode. Let's hear about this person now.
1: So Pearl is 85 and she's admitted to hospital from a care home and is put in the acute assessment unit. The care home report that she's increasingly agitated and is becoming too challenging for them to manage. A carer from the home has brought her to the unit. The carer has known her for the last year.
0: So what we're going to talk through is how you approach this. A number of professionals could be involved in assessing the person at the front door. And I think generally the idea is thinking about what is the problem exactly and what are the behaviours that challenge. And I I think it's really important that we frame it as behaviours that challenge rather than challenging behaviour or challenging patients. So to try and find out exactly what they're saying, they're meaning by agitated, what is too challenging for them to manage. And really important, like any history, find out how long this has been happening. Is this something that's been happening for a week um, and has got suddenly worse? Or is this something that's been gradually progressing over the last year? I guess we also want to find out what the triggers are. And the carer might be able to give some information about this. And what makes it better? What makes it worse? We've talked about the course and also why now? What's happened now or today to for the care home to feel that they can't manage anymore, And that sometimes just helps us get a sense of what do we need to do about it.
1: So sort of defining the problem in, in a, a bit more detail, getting a really good history.
0: Yeah, it's really important at that early stage to really when you've got the carer in the acute medical unit who can give you really good collateral you've got the patient you may be able to contact the family to try and draw everything together we also want to look a little bit about the past and look at the relevant past medical and psychiatric history um, it's really important to know does this person have a known diagnosis of dementia as we know sometimes diagnosis can be written in the notes that aren't always the case um, or aren't quite correct so it's really important to get some background information to know what exactly are the known diagnosis before now if so what type is it and what is the stage of the dementia and are they on any medication treatments for this um, are there any other teams that have been involved that could give us some really rich information to help and also to go through what has been tried before they've come to us at the acute unit and If they have been to a memory clinic, they may have a very thorough assessment with very detailed personal and social history that may be really helpful in getting a sense of the person and be able to enable us to pull things together.
2: And that's where the the This Is Me document can be quite helpful in the immediate setting, can't it? You can summarise some of that information for the people looking after her then and there. Yeah.
1: And the This Is Me document is something that's produced by... Outsiders the Alzheimers Society. Society, there are other things there's reach out to me, which is mm. part of the butterfly scheme, mm. eight things about me. There's a number of different documents oh. on there for pulling this sort of information together
2: the, the aim of them is all a similar similar goal really to kind of share understanding about this person's history.
0: And generally someone in a care home will have a detailed individualised care plan but it's really important that that information is shared mm. so just because someone is now in an acute hospital or an acute assessment doesn't mean that's not relevant. We really need all of that information.
2: Mm. And you've got a, a framework that you quite liked, you? The, the pieces. If we maybe just kind of summarise that, we're going to have a link to this on in the show notes.
3: Yeah, so it's, I mean, it is quite lengthy and it's... um and quite exhaustive, which I think is actually one of the things that's very helpful about it, because having a system in what can initially seem like a quite chaotic situation is is quite helpful, and some of the things that it talks about are sort of very obvious, but they're actually things that are quite commonly missed um and so starting off with the p, you start off with thinking about physical problems or discomfort. Um, And so there's a whole list of things that you can kind of work through and think about whether it might be one of these. Is it an acute medical problem? Is it a delirium? Um, Is it something to do with the drugs that someone's on? Have they recently been started on something, stopped from something, something been missed off their drug chart? And obviously under drugs, we also have to think about kind of uh, substances and alcohol, which is increasingly a problem. There's um, things to think about in terms of of drugs and alcohol. Um, There's obviously pain, which is a a big thing that we've been kind of increasingly hearing about pain in dementia. There's some really good studies by Liz Sampson um, and her colleagues on how to recognise pain in dementia. Um, And there's a lot of kind of, um, I mean, there's been a a history of people not necessarily recognising pain in people with dementia and, and perhaps even not even believing that people could feel pain and therefore not treating pain. Um, and I think we are getting better at that, um, but it's still unrecognized and and undertreated. Things like primitive reflexes um can sometimes be responsible for for behaviors. Um, and things as well, basic human needs, which are always important to remember, people might be just tired or hungry or thirsty or bored. And because they have dementia, they're not able to necessarily communicate that by saying i'm I'm tired or hungry. And so their behavior might manifest in it in a different way. Um, and the other really important one not to miss is constipation as well. The, the I then stands for kind of intellectual and cognitive changes, which is really to do with the kind of cognitive changes that happen in dementia. All of the, the kind of cognitive losses that you have, the A words, the anosognosia, the amnesia, and so on, um, which which are part of the dementing process itself. So
2: then E is for emotional, so looking for if there's any signs of depression or history of that. Do they have any anxiety, any psychosis? Um, have they got PTSD of earlier experiences that they might be reliving right now? Are there any adjustment difficulties? Thinking about interaction with carers, it's really important to identify burnout in carers because that might be the reason that they've come to the hospital today. So as you were saying, Vicky, why now? And it might not actually be anything to do with that person in front of you. It might be their wider support network that's the problem. If you don't identify that, you're not going to be able to to sort things out. And thinking about any aggression that might be around, what that might be due to and what emotional needs that might be representing.
0: And also patients can have what we call emotional lability where their moods can be up and down Mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily represent a full depression or a full mania but they can have a mood that's very changeable and which sometimes carers or staff
3: find quite difficult to manage and understand. And I think one of the things that we see quite commonly as well is that people who've had really, really difficult upbringings and horrible experiences early in their lives who may have kind of found a way to process that at some point you know, in their adulthood, then with the effects of dementia, things can kind of get stripped away and and people start to re-experience things, um, especially with the kind of temporal disorientation that you might start to get flashbacks again and and that kind of fear of of being back as you were as a child um, without any of that processing having taken place. Mm. And I think that can be very, very traumatic for people sometimes.
0: And if you've had a very bad experience of institutional care as a child, it's not surprising if you were placed in a care home which reminded you of that. That it would make you feel frightened, mm. and so that's why we need to take into account people's personal history in thinking about their care plan.
3: Yeah. So C stands for capacities. Any time you try and make an acronym, I think it's always kind of there's going to be a few kind of forced areas, <laughs> aren't there? Um, but capacities, I suppose, is about um, not the Mental Capacity Act per se, but sort of more about what are people able to still do and what are they not doing? Um, what could they be doing um, if they were kind of supported? Um, and so, you know, it's very common that because people are now perhaps in a in a care facility that they don't have access to the hobbies and things that they used to be able to do or they, they don't have the intellectual capacity to do that anymore. So they might just be very bored. We've talked, I've already gone on about the wandering um mm. so you know you might just have a lot of unused energy if you're someone that used to walk you know mm. a lot during your job whether you were a nurse or you know maybe you used a to do security yeah, something. exactly yeah. security guards um you know you might be up all night and people will say that that's you know you're wandering but actually that's just actually returning to a routine that you know really well
1: then thinking about the environment for e thinking about whether or not someone has a feeling of uh, or problems with relocation so feeling that they're lost and a need to try and get home because they don't recognize that where they are at the moment is their their current home um and then the ambience of where where you are sort of whether or not there is uh, excessive or distressing or constant noise if you're someone that used to live on a farm in the middle of nowhere then you're used to quiet and if you are now living in sort of a, a large care home it's going to be relatively noisy um and just that that Juxtaposition may cause you some some disquiet.
2: We've had a few people at St George's actually, um, with the helicopter landing, who get quite traumatised by that noise, and it, as you say, takes it takes them back to previous experiences, either from the war or from other traumatic experiences earlier in their life, and that really agitates them. And it's something that's really difficult to control for or stop because we can't stop the helicopter landing. <laughs>
0: And the other thing of thinking about people in care homes is people can be in shared rooms mm. and so they can be in a room with someone that is noisy at night mm. so it's not necessarily that they uh, they can't sleep it's, it's that they're being woken mm. or that the person that, that is with them is causing a particular challenge which mm. has an impact on their well-being so it's really important just to find out do they have their own room, is it a shared room is it quiet, mm. is it well lit I can remember I saw a patient and she was seeing pink dots and when I went to see her in her care home um, the the carpet was pink and dotty and the room was pink and the the care home moved her into a a room which had a cream walls and a plain carpet and it resolved within 24 hours so it's really important to not underestimate environment
3: as an important um, having an important impact on people's Mm. well-being I think there's increasingly some research looking at kind of how care homes should be structured in a way that kind of naturally promotes the ability for people to kind of walk around and and not kind of get to a, a dead end to be able to kind of keep going and have a purpose and, and the environment can actually prompt you to, to go in the right direction.
1: There was an article on Twitter about that today, actually. Exactly that, and that was almost my pick of the week. This
3: week.
2: <laughs> it's too late now. Yeah. Also, the King's Fund have... Uh, Given some clear guidance about hospital environments and no. how to make them um, not just dementia friendly but kind of safe for dementia as well. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And the Royal College of
0: Nursing have their space principles, um, and it's the approach to looking after people with dementia in the acute hospital. And the last that it's different, it starts with staff who are skilled, <laughs> partnership working. <laughs> Um, working with carers, assessment. um, But importantly, the E is environment, so focusing on the environment Mm. wherever you are because patients with dementia can be on any ward of of an acute hospital. absolutely.
1: We're working through pieces. We've done the P, which is uh, physical. We've done the I, which is intellectual. We've done the E, which is emotional. C, which is capacities. The next E was Environmental. And then that brings us to the S at the end.
3: So we're we're finally at the end. S stands for social and cultural. Um, And so that's just thinking again about the person and their spiritual and cultural needs. Um, And I suppose one of the really common um, difficulties that people might have is that they may speak a different language from the carers who are looking after them. So if people either speak a language other than English or perhaps used to be able to speak English but can no longer speak English because of their dementia, it makes communication very difficult where they are and that can lead to misunderstandings.
2: Okay, so going back to Pearl, we're going to get a bit more information, kind of using that structure um, and thinking about those things when we're taking the collateral history to find out a little bit more.
1: Pearl is described as agitated and aggressive, which is the problem. Pearl has been becoming increasingly agitated during personal care. She seems perplexed by carers washing and dressing her and can strike them, telling men in particular to go away. She will only allow females to help her in the bathroom. She can no longer follow simple commands such as lift your leg, step forwards and cannot retain short sentences. She spends a lot of the day pacing and can be aggressive physically to other residents if they get in her way. She can push other residents out of the way and is particularly distressed by the resident in the neighbouring room who is male. Busy periods in the home, such as visiting times or meal times, result in more agitated behaviour. Pearl does not sleep well at night, and the night staff report she usually sleeps for around three hours. She usually gets up and they give her a cup of tea and she paces the day room and the corridors. She can fall when she gets tired if she's been pacing for more than a few hours.
2: And now a little bit more about her medical and psychiatric history.
1: All of the above have noticed to get gradually worse over the past 6 to 12 months. In the last week, it's noticeably worse. It is possibly triggered by her only daughter going on holiday and not visiting every day. The GP visited and has ruled out any infection. On clarification, she has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia in the severe stages. She is dependent on carers to meet her basic needs, such as washing, dressing and continence. She has had Alzheimer's for around five years and has been in a care home for the past 18 months. At her last memory test, her MMSC scored 8 out of 30, indicative of the severe stages of a dementia. She has a history also of hypertension and osteoarthritis.
2: And she's also got a This Is Me document.
1: And this says that Pearl used to work as a nursing sister, predominantly working night shifts at a busy local hospital. And she has one daughter who is very supportive and visits every day. And she appears to recognise her and enjoys her visits.
2: It's like it's just lots more information about her, doesn't it? Um, we can see a lot more about what's going on. So you can see that, that collateral and getting that information in a very specific way, you can start to see that this helps to lead on to direct management plans. The thing, as we said, when, when this is coming to light quite acutely is trying to work out whether this is delirium or BPSD. Um, and there's quite a nice uh, kind of list of questions to, to kind of work through to to work out which this might be.
0: If we take this scenario, so we ask ourselves, is this a person that's known to have dementia? And in Pearl's case, it's a yes. And again, is this someone with a severe dementia? And yes, we know that because of Pearl's care needs, the extent of of how dependent she is on others to meet her basic needs, but also her MSE. So the two together tell us that she has a dementia in the severe stages we also look at whether these behaviours have been present for more than just a short period. So as everyone knows, delirium is an acute confusion um, where behavioural and psychological symptoms is something that's of a longer duration and normally in the severe stages of dementia. So from the history we've got from Pearl, we've got a sense that this has been something that's been coming on over a period of time and we can notice that she's more perplexed and her short-term memory problems are more marked meaning she's really struggling to remember when the carers are asking her to do something in in personal care routines, she just can't r- retain it long enough and therefore finds the whole um, procedure of being washed and dressed incredibly perplexing um, so this isn't so much agitation or aggression, this is just confusion from a very perplexing difficult situation for her this can be really helped by carers doing everything slowly one if there are two carers one carer talking at a time so one carer focusing on the care and one carer focusing on talking and doing one short sentence ensuring that pearl understands and then Doing that action. So that can really help with this kind of behaviour, which has been labelled as agitation but is more due to the severity of her dementia. And
2: the next step in that list of questions is Has a physical cause been ruled out? As you said, de- uh, delirium is usually an acute thing, um, and that has been by the GP that's visited her.
0: Yeah, so we, that's been ruled out, but interesting, what has been noticed is the things that make it worse. And we know that this is a a persistent problem, a persistent behaviour, and that actually there are triggers. So there are clear triggers such as the busy times in the care home. This is when often the care home is most noisy. Residents are often all asked to sit in a small area together to have a meal, or visitors may come, which may be very confusing for Pearl, and um, there may be lots of people walking past her door that she doesn't know who they are. And so this is a time that we can have a clear sense of when this is going to happen and the care home can plan for it Mm. and help her um, to spend some time in a quieter area, which she can find less stimulating and therefore doesn't cause agitation. Mm. And that's really important.
2: Yeah. So just running through those questions again, you would say that this is a BPSD rather than a delirium if you answer yes to all of these questions. Does the person have a known dementia? Is it in the severe stages? Are the behaviours present for longer than just a short period? Has a physical cause been ruled out? Is there a significant persistent agitation or psychosis or apathy? And has a delirium been ruled out? Yeah. So we can see quite clearly here that Pearl would have a diagnosis of BPSD
3: rather than delirium. I think as well as short-term memory, it's also helpful to think about kind of expressive and receptive dysphasia that people can have. And sometimes we don't quite realise that people aren't doing what we ask them to do. You know, we think that maybe they're just being difficult, but it might be they actually don't understand. And that's where I think um, occupational therapists and speech and language therapists can be very good in looking at the... The process that needs to occur whether it's kind of washing or dressing and and prompting care home staff to kind of use particular ways that might be non-spoken prompts for what's coming next so whether it's kind of laying clothes out on the bed and Mm. and that sort of thing.
2: We can kind of group that together as kind of the cognitive symptoms and non-cognitive symptoms that Mm. she has so that would go into the cognitive area and as we said she's got an MMSC of 8 out of 30 which is in severe stages and having difficulty with retaining information. And understanding information also she is showing signs of non-cognitive symptoms as well so the agitation and pacing sleep problems she's more irritable than she was pre-morbidly and she is not noted to have any psychotic symptoms such as delusions hallucinations or any sexual disinhibition so we're going to do another episode on this in the future and concentrate a little bit more on the specific um, management techniques that you can use to manage this beyond the recognition. So, listen out for that in series five.
0: The MDT
3: Podcast.
1: That's everything we're going to talk about this time. Mm-hmm. But we do just have one time for a final MDTs of this series. Yes. This is our MDT item, Getting Game. So, I have some clues here from Tapiwa Moffat, who's yes. a clinical fellow that works with us. And shall I go first, Jo? Yes, hang on. Have you got a stopwatch? So this is an MDT item. Are we ready, Joe?
2: Always. Go.
1: So this is something that comes onto a ward environment and goes off again. It may come from a kitchen and it contains T-trolley. Yes.
3: Yes. Oh nice.
1: How Nine long seconds. It? Nine yes. seconds. Gonna be a tough one for you to beat.
3: We
2: haven't fine tuned how the scoring works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. My turn. Okay.
1: Ready, steady, go.
2: This is an item which looks like a pencil but isn't. Pen? Almost. Pen torch? Yes. Yes.
1: Nine seconds.
2: Ah, what a draw. Yes, so mine was pen torch. I was not allowed to say light, dark, pocket, eyes, see, shine, examine, or neurological. That's
3: poetry Mm. right there, actually. (laughs) Those things you're not allowed to say. Yes.
1: And we have a final MD teaser for you. Um, This is Tappy with the full sound from last time and the answer, so we don't leave you hanging over the Christmas time.
3: A really tricky MD teaser this time around. That sound was adjusting a walking stick. So well done if you had a guess. Keep your suggestions coming in for games for Joe and Ian to play at the end of each episode next
2: series and have a lovely Christmas. There you go. Did you get it? Did you, Ian?
1: I cheated, I knew what it was to start with.
2: So that's it for this series. Uh, We will be back early next year with our fifth series.
1: So this was the last episode that uh, Tapiwa Moffat, our clinical fellow, is involved with in this stretch. Uh, of the MDT she's been with us a year as our clinical fellow and she's been absolutely invaluable she has Um, and I think sometimes maybe it doesn't come across in the podcast about exactly how much work she does to make all these things happen so really heartfelt thanks to Tappy for that
2: absolutely thank you
1: thank you very much
2: the MDT will reconvene in 2018
0: Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.